Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, should we be panicking about coronavirus, big tech censorship, and Richard Dacre rejoins to talk about his disqualification from the conservative leadership race. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Coronavirus-free so far, so thank you very much. We'll see how it is by the end of the show, but I don't have any in-studio guests, so I think I can probably make it. We'll be talking about the coronavirus scare later on in the show and why I'm kind of alienating myself from, not in quarantine, but I mean ideologically from both sides of this, people that think it's nothing to worry about and people that think we all need to be stocking up and prepping for doomsday. I'm somewhere in between those two. So we'll be talking about that later on in the show, as well as big tech censorship and where the answer to that, if there even is one, lies. That's all coming up later on. But I want to talk first off about where the Conservative Party of Canada has gone, in my view, horrendously wrong in disqualifying Richard de Carry. So the Conservative Party had its leadership filing period, which has now ended. It was on the 27th or 28th of February, last weekend. And in order to be on the ballot as a leadership candidate, you had to submit by that point, 11.59 p.m., your 1,000 signatures of members that are active in a number of provinces and ridings across Canada, and also a check for $25,000, which could have been your own money. You could loan it to the campaign. And the money is not as difficult as the signatures are. It's actually hard to find a thousand people who are paid up members. But regardless, a number of candidates did that. Candidates were successful. There were to be exact nine of them that submitted their papers in time. Eight of them are authorized as candidates right now, or approved applicants, as the party calls them. One of them, Richard Descari, was disqualified. Now, the party has not said why he was disqualified specifically. A spokesperson did tell me, quote, reasons for not allowing a candidacy are not disclosed per our standard nomination practices, but it's not a decision the committee ever takes lightly. Now, the only thing we can really do is read between the lines and look at what it is that Richard Descari has done that the party might not like. And it's something that we actually talked about on the show when it happened a few weeks ago. He was doing an interview on CTV with Evan Solomon in which he avowed that he views homosexuality as a choice and said that he opposes same-sex marriage. Now, Descari is a devout Catholic. He adheres to the traditional Catholic Church teaching on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. He is avowed as a social conservative, but they didn't bar other social conservatives from running. They didn't bar Leslin Lewis, who identifies as a social conservative, or Derek Sloan. Uh, Jim Carajalios, very devoutly pro-life. He was approved as a candidate as well. The only one that was denied is Descari. Now, in many respects, this sounds like an example of the party feeling, 
okay, we've got to make an example of this guy to fend off the attacks we're going to get from the media if we allow him to be a candidate. The problem with that is that you cannot, as a party establishment, as a group of, for the most part, unelected people in a conservative party boardroom or on a conference call, say, we are going to decide who has the right to stand as a candidate rather than letting the voters decide who they think is going to be the best suited to lead the party. And this is where I am now, because you may remember a few weeks ago, I said very unequivocally on the show that I thought Descaries' comments were not in alignment with the party. They were not in alignment with where the party needs to be as far as the messaging and the form of communication goes. And I say this as someone who is more of a social conservative that I don't think we need to be dwelling on certain issues that seem to be in the SOCON Rolodex sometimes, and one of those is gay marriage. I don't think it's an issue that social conservatives should be campaigning on or the Conservative Party of Canada. But, you know, that's really beside the point, because I think that even though Descari may have said something and done something that makes him unsuitable to cast a ballot for in many people's eyes, that is the responsibility and the prerogative of the members to decide, not the leadership committee. And this is the issue, is that I don't think he would have won. He's not a well-known person. He's not someone that was a front-runner in the race, necessarily. He had support. I mean, clearly, he was able to get 1,000 members, and he was able to get the money together to file that application. But it says a lot that the party was so scared of having him on the ballot. It says a lot that the party didn't want him to even have a shot. And that's interesting because if you look back in 2017, it was the social conservative vote that gave Andrew Scheer the victory. It was the social conservative votes that were cast for Pierre Lemieux and more specifically Brad Trost that ultimately filtered into Andrew Scheer's support because of the ranked ballot and gave Andrew Scheer the victory. So by taking out a social conservative that was unlikely to win, what the conservatives are actually doing is taking out a, uh, a support base that would have gone to another candidate. And the theory that's been advanced by Richard Descaries campaign is that the party establishment is trying to help Peter McKay. Now, Peter McKay has taken a very anti-social conservative stance to date in his campaign. Aaron O'Toole, who's the other front runner, I guess you could say, not a social conservative, but has said unequivocally that he supports conscience rights and he realizes that the conservative party has a place for social conservatives. So it's likely that a lot of the social conservative votes would have eventually trickled to... Aaron O'Toole, if the party dynamics and the leadership dynamics stay the way they are right now. And that's a big if. We're still talking about months away. So it's actually quite important because the party has not just handicapped Richard Descaries. They're handicapping anyone who would have benefited from votes that Descaries brought into the race. And that's why there is a, an element of 3D chess that's going on here in whomever made the decision to disqualify him because there are other votes that are at stake and other candidates that are at stake here. 
I want to speak to Richard Descari himself about what the party has told him, because so far the party has not said anything other than that statement that I gave you, basically, that, well, we don't make these decisions lightly, but we aren't going to talk about what's happening and what went wrong and why. Richard Descari joins me on the line now. Uh, Richard, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So let's get through the nuts and bolts of this. You submitted all of the documents that the party required, the form, the questionnaire, 1,000 signatures, the $25,000. You did all of that, correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And what happened when you did that? Because I understand there's supposed to be an interview. Did the party interview you? Yes, the interview uh, occurred uh, last Thursday. And it went very well, about 45 minutes, asking questions about mainly about the things that were already uh, public. And there were no sub questions or other questions. So uh, I think it went very well. And the, the, since it was only in English, I think the, uh, they uh, saw that uh, I could in English very easily. And so at the end of that, you didn't think that you were being disqualified. They never told you they had these grave concerns about your candidacy. No, and apparently from uh, an anonymous uh, source that said that uh, it wasn't based on what I was uh, had said publicly, uh, it's very mysterious because uh, they're not supposed to comment at all. So somebody has commented, first of all. And if they had had something else than uh, other than what I said publicly in the past uh, months or years, they should have uh, asked me about it during the interview. I think the interview is uh, is based on the fact that they must ask that could be uh, confidential and nothing uh, occurred uh, towards that way. So I think, uh, and that's the rumor uh, internally, that the decision of the committee was uh, positive after the, the uh, interview. And 48 hours later, uh, it was the opposite. So in the absence of any real substantive information from the party, I read the statement they gave earlier on the show that uh, reasons are not disclosed and it's, quote, not a decision the committee ever takes lightly, unquote. The only assumption that anyone's been able to make is that it goes back to that interview you did with Evan Solomon, where you talked about your belief that homosexuality is a choice. And I, I don't want to relitigate that, but... But you're saying that you've heard that wasn't the case, that they had something of else mysteriously that they're using <laughs> to justify your disqualification? Some Something mysteriously, according to that anonymous source, <laughs> and saying also that uh, it wasn't something I said publicly, so it disqualifies the fact that I said what I said at the CTV interview. And what I said at the CTV interview was based on scientific... Uh, um, uh, studies that were uh, public since nine, uh, 2019, August 2019, in, in a magazine, uh, Science, uh, that revealed that 470,000 people were uh, polled, and more than 90% of the chances were that uh, homosexuality was a choice. That That's mainly what I, I base my... Uh, my you know, even most social conservatives that I know, however, are less interested in gay marriage and homosexuality than they are in things like abortion or gender identity. So I guess the question is legitimate. Why did you feel it was so important to focus on that issue early on in the campaign? Because uh, <clears throat> one of the main things that brought uh, Brad Truss to uh, to run at the, the last leadership race in 2017 was the fact that the party changed the definition of marriage in 2016. 
uh, uni unilaterally, it was done uh, against uh, all the Silicon base, who was amazed to see that change. Well, so, in, in fairness, Richard, it wasn't unilaterally. The members voted on it as they vote on yeah. other policy. I've been in the back uh, office of uh, our party organization. I can tell you the way it works. So we won't, we won't extend on that. I, I agree with you that we need to do the same process. And that's, what I, that's why I was bringing that into uh, this race, saying that we need to reverse the process and we will do it uh, democratically. And I think the party was uh, fearing that I could uh, succeed doing that. And I was just uh, asking to change the name and destitution of marriage to uh, to to be applied only to a couple that is made out of a man and a woman, and all the the other unions would be uh, celebrated as civil unions, like it was already the case. So it wouldn't change much, but the impact on social conservative base was very important, and and I was uh, I have been uh, praised by. Uh, this, this declaration, uh, everywhere I went in Ontario and Quebec, people were amazed that I have uh, the guts to say that on national television. If your disqualification by the party was about your social conservatism, how would you explain the fact that other social conservatives were approved? Derek Sloan, Leslin Lewis, uh, Jim Carajalios, I know he's pro-life, I don't know about other issues, but, but at least two social conservatives that were approved when you weren't. How do you explain or think about that disparity? First of all, none of them are bilingual, so I'm the only bilingual social conservative in that race. So I was a threat uh, to Peter McKay, who is not bilingual, by the way. So uh, to, to keep uh, those candidates who are less local issues uh, that I was. And I said three words during this interview, you know, three words that killed my campaign and killed all the, uh, the uh, SoCon base of this party. It's pretty amazing. So at the same time, you think that it was because you had a better shot or were a, a more electable candidate in the leadership than the other ones that were approved? I think so, because I was bilingual. That would, that would help for sure. I have extensive experience in, uh, in politics, like I said, in back office uh, work. So I know about all the tricks and I was ready to fight the good fight. So I think they were scared about that. But at the same time, you've not held elected office. You're not one of the people that was one of the perceived front runners of the race. Why do you think you would have been seen as a threat in those terms just because you're bilingual? No, not just because I'm bilingual. Uh, since I am and Peter McKay is not and Erin O'Toole has difficulties to speak French, uh, it would have been a disaster at the French debate. You, you can't imagine that. But also all the uh, the frankness of my uh, my, uh, you know, uh, uh, the directness uh, of what I was saying, I think, was uh, a threat to uh, the party establishment and to those other candidates. And when you say I'm not the front in the front runners, I think it, it's that's the way uh, liberals works uh, in and out of the party, I would say. Uh, by controlling the messaging and having a lot of money so they can spin the news and all that. So I'm used to that. And I was ready to fight it uh, with my very small uh, partition, I would say, in this, uh, in this race. And I think the fact that I was a threat shows that uh, the, uh, the content that I was uh, presenting was stronger 
than all the uh, the marketing that those parties are used to to build on. I think that's fair. And, and I think in my defense, I said perceived front runner because I, I was trying yes. to establish that this is the narrative. And I mean, ultimately, yeah. until people cast ballots, you don't technically exactly. know who the front runner is. And and I, I've maintained and I, I said this to my listeners and I'll say it to you as well, that, you know, you have a, a democratic process or what's supposed to be a democratic process, yeah. which exactly. means the voters have the opportunity to say if they don't think you're a suitable candidate. And that should have been where the decision was made, not in a back room. And that was I was that that's why I was surprised, and my team was very surprised that I was disqualified because they should have let me run for the next month at least uh, to show if we can gather three hundred thousand dollars. It's a bit uh, exaggerated because uh, the first rule that they should have put uh, their first requirement for to be a candidate should have been to be bilingual enough to debate at a French debate. Since uh, they didn't do that. We we had we ended up uh, with uh, over ten candidates potential. Uh, we would have been maximum three people in, in this race. So what's the need to have a three hundred dollar uh, barrier when you have a simple thing like bilingualism? I guess the question that I would ask you or, or any other candidate here is, do you think that the party has an issue with social conservatives who make up a, a sizable chunk of the base? I mean, Andrew Scheer was elected as leader as a social conservative, and I think there are some uh, disputes about whether he <clears throat> maintained his leadership as one, but he was chosen as a leader as a social conservative. A lot of the support that Brad Trost had in that leadership race was what pushed Andrew Scheer over the edge. So do you think yeah. that the party is against social conservatives or do you think the party is just for whatever reason against you? When we say the party, I think we say the establishment that is behind uh, the party. And I think the, the establishment of the progressive conservative who tried to fight Harper's uh, uh, beginning uh, when, when I helped him in 2003-04 to, to get elected as a leader, uh, those people are still fighting and they tried to, came in, to come in with... Uh, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole's. So I think this is not a surprise that those people and Peter McKay was very, very clear about that with his uh, thinking albatross uh, image uh, about the fact that uh, social conservatism for them is uh, is from the past and should be we should get rid of those people. So that's what brought Brad Truss into the race. Uh, unfortunately, um, Mr. Shear, who is a social conservative personally, uh, couldn't uh, defend his own position, his own values at the last election campaign. And that's why he lost. I agree with uh, Peter McKay and all those people about that. But the fact that the social conservatism is uh, as to we have to get rid of that uh, segment of conservatism, uh, I think it's the opposite. This is the foundation of this party. And if we defend it, if Andrew Scheer had defended those values, at the last election campaign, I think he was he was winning at the first week of the campaign, and the, the the last two weeks when he stopped defending those values, that's where he lost. So I think, and that's the reason I came into this race is to uh, ensure that uh, we would bring those values upward, and ensure that the party uh, changes few things in its policies, so we can uh, we can. And like you said, the members should have been decided. They should have let me run 
and see if I had the base, uh, the support base. And I think they were afraid that I had it. And that's why they, they, they just did what they did. Would you support, Richard, the party <clears throat> making public its decision to disqualify you? I don't think they will because uh, we have an, an agreement uh, signed that uh, nothing as uh, nothing will be uh, commented or said. And like I said, I didn't I didn't say anything about uh, the interviews or all the answers I gave and everything. So I think it's going to stay confidential, and that's okay. But uh, the proof is in the pudding in the sense that if the anonymous source is uh, true. <clears throat> is uh, is uh, right about the fact that it wasn't based on what I said publicly. So if it's something else that is not public, we will never know. And then I think uh, I, I'm not the type to to go fight for the recognition and all that. You know, to go. A lot of people are asking me if I want to fight in the, the this one uh, through the tribunals and all that. <clears throat> it's not my type. I think it's a political party. We need to fight it politically, and that's why I will continue with uh, richarddecarie.ca, uh, my website, and we will uh, gather all the social conservative and others, the real conservatives, from the CPC, from the PPC, because a lot of those members uh, were following me or were supporting me in my campaign, and also those who are not affiliated to any parties. I uh, welcome them to uh, my new movement, I would say, and we will get organized in the next weeks and we'll follow this leadership campaign closely. And I even told uh, journalists that I will be uh, very available to comment whatever will happen. And we'll ensure that the social conservative members who are still in the, the CPC party will have a voice. I'm the voice of those who don't have a voice, unfortunately. So we'll be there until the next election, general election. And I am uh, pretty sure that if it's Mr. McKay that is leading this party, we'll have a big problem, uh, big trouble to be elected at the next general election. So on that note, are you going to support the other social conservatives <coughs> in the race or have you kind of washed your hands of the conservative party at this point? I already, already told um, Derek Sloan, who's a very nice man, an MP from Ontario. We were very close to his positions uh, socially. Unfortunately, Derek doesn't speak French, so I told him that I would support him uh, because he will be uh, Peter McKay, who doesn't speak French anyway, <laughs> so it's not a big problem. Uh, that will uh, probably bring us a leader that doesn't speak French enough to be fighting uh, as a prime minister. So uh, we will be supporting Derek Sloan. Okay. Well, I appreciate you uh, letting me know that and also taking the time to chat. And interestingly, only a couple of candidates have really defended you against the process. And Derek Sloan yep. was one of them. Uh, Jim Carajalios exactly. was one of them. But I think that's a, a very interesting dynamic as well, that uh, <laughs> there's a lot of silence from some of the others. Yeah, and I think the silence is uh, talking by itself. <laughs> uh, Richard Descari, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. You know, this sort of thing I find just so very frustrating because this is what happens that gets parties really in a lack of alignment with their members and, and with their base. And and look, I say this, I want to make perfectly clear that I am 
totally pro-social conservative, and I'm pro-having social conservatives in the party, I'm pro-life, and I take a libertarian stance as far as the role of government on issues like gay marriage, etc. But again, I am not someone who is resistant to having social conservatives in the party. I do realize that there are messaging challenges. I think that you need to be able to sell your policies and sell your ideas well, and I, I say this again as someone who writes for the interim, a social conservative magazine, one of the columns I wrote recently was talking about how uh, social conservatives need to better package their message, and, and th th not all of them, I'm saying in, in some particular cases. So when that initial CTV interview came up, this was an example where I'm like, you know what, I think this is probably not the best way to put this forward. Now, Richard Descari, in his defense, he's saying, yeah, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is the basis for it, and I'm going to be honest and transparent about where I stand. And I have a lot of respect for politicians that are not leaving you wondering what it is that they believe. And this was the frustration that a lot of social conservatives had with Andrew Scheer, is that they knew he was one of them, but he wasn't speaking like that during the general election campaign, and he was still getting criticized just as much for being a social conservative. So it's not even like it really won him all that much in the way of support from these people. But to go back to the disqualification, the party cannot disqualify people because it does not want them to have an opportunity to put their message to the voters. Unless they have some major disqualifying reason as this anonymous source supposedly said that is against the rules or eligibility in which case disclose it at the very least to the candidate you don't need to make it publicly but disclose it to the candidate which it sounds like did not happen here so i'm wanting to see a lot more transparency from the party because again the conservative party of canada did not do itself any favors by really muddling this process. At first, they weren't saying anything. They were just saying, nope, we have eight approved candidates. And everyone's like, well, hang on. There was this other guy that applied. Like, we have eight approved candidates. And then they started to say, we don't uh, discuss and we don't take these decisions likely. They're not even mentioning his name. They're not even saying the guy's name. So by doing this, they let people fill in the blanks themselves. They force people to fill in the blanks themselves, and everyone assumes the worst, that this is an assault on the social conservative wing of the party by the party establishment. That's the way this is perceived. And yes, you have social conservatives that were approved, like Leslin Lewis and uh, Derek Sloan, and, and I think that there is some disparity there of, okay, well, if they're against social conservatives, how come these ones were allowed in? And a lot of people are trying to say right now that, oh, well, there's a right way and a wrong way to be a SOCON, and they're doing it the right way, and Richard was doing it the wrong way. And, and again, whatever you think, it is the responsibility of the voting members, of the voting members to make that determination, not the party elites, which is by definition what the leadership committee, and I have friends on that committee, I none of them have given me any inside scoops, I assure you, and I don't know if it was a split decision. I want to believe, and I certainly hope there was some pushback on that committee to say, ah, this is not what we should be doing. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to the show. Still no coronavirus. Still none. I mean, I did cough a couple of minutes before I started this segment, but no coronavirus just yet. So we're still managing to sit pretty as we coast through this. I don't want to make light of something. Well, I do actually, because I try to make light of things. It's the only way to survive the world sometimes. But we have the number of coronavirus cases worldwide passing 90,000. And I'm following this very closely because I'm supposed to be going to Taiwan in less than two months. So obviously, if there's a massive uh, pandemic outbreak in Taiwan, I might have to reevaluate this. But I'm planning on going at this point. I received a a very kind invitation to a, a media opportunity there. But I do think that where we are at now, and I said this at the top of the show, is that you've got people that are on full-blown panic, clearing grocery store shelves of hand sanitizer, disinfectant wipes, canned foods, all of that. And then you've got people that are just completely uninterested that think that it's uh, basically just a bunch of hooey and not really a thing at all, that it's no different than the flu and even better than the flu. And I'm actually somewhat in between these two camps because I think it has the potential to be something very serious. It is very serious in several parts of the world and for several people. Iran, most notably, where it seems, I think it was like 8% of... uh, 8% of lawmakers had coronavirus. I saw something. I haven't looked into the report, but that was what I read. And then you've got, of course, China. And the big variable here is whether China has been deliberately downplaying the impact of this. And I, I think that's where the real issue is going to be. Because when everyone talks about the mortality rate and says that, oh, it's actually lower than the common flu, they're missing that China may be grossly deflating its deaths from this. And I think that is where we are looking at this now. There's been a number of reports that have been talking about mass cremations in China, mass cremations in China. And when you look at some of these, and this is not just some conspiracy, BBC was writing about this. And there was basically a swift cremation that was taking place, an order by China's top health authority to not even do funerals, to just do direct cremation. You had crematoriums that were working round the clock. And in one particular case that I read, uh, you had uh, Wuhan crematoriums burning bodies 24-7 to cope with extra workload during coronavirus. And that doesn't align with what China says its death toll has been officially. And this is getting a lot of people to wonder, okay, have there been a lot more fatalities that China was not talking about? And let's face it, it was China. It was China. You can't uh, believe what they say when they have so much invested in their image around the world. So the Epoch Times had an interview with a crematorium worker who said 90% of their employees working 24-7 since January 28th. And if you do the math, that is a lot more than the 490, I think it was, that China officially said Wednesday was its death toll. Uh, Round the clock for a month and a week. Round the clock for six, seven weeks, basically. So a lot of question marks there. So this is why I realize there is probably a legitimate reason to be concerned. And I think general precautions like washing your hand and not just doing open mouth kissing with strangers, which, I mean, we do all the rest of the year, I guess. Not doing that, I think, is probably pretty reasonable. I did find it interesting. I was—I'm a, a former Anglican. I'm now—I go to a Pentecostal church, 
So we don't do the communion wine thing. But I do realize that the communion tradition is very important around this time of year because of coronavirus. And in the Anglican Church, I don't know if they still do it in most Catholic churches, but in the Anglican Church, a lot of the time you will all sip from the common communion chalices. And the Bishop of the Diocese of Toronto for the Anglican Church of Canada has suspended communion wine. So no communion wine in Toronto Anglican churches for the next little while amid the coronavirus scare. We The statement that was released says, presiding celebrants are to consecrate both the bread and the wine and to consume in both kinds, but to administer only the bread to the rest of the congregation. And they say that the church's ancient teaching is that the whole Christ is received, whether one receives only consecrated bread or both bread and wine. The protocol is effective today and to be continued until further notice. So uh, we've gone from this is my body, this is my blood, to uh, this is my body, and we'll save the blood for once the flu season and the coronavirus season ends. That's where things are now. And I I like this part better. Uh, We are advising people to share words and smiles only, not handshakes or hugs. You know, there are a lot of people that would love to have the no handshake, no hugs, no greeting your stranger rule at church year-round. So this may actually be like boosting church attendance because people that don't like forced social interaction are like, all right, I guess I can go to church now without being put on the spot to uh, do the exchange of peace. So I am curious, do send me an email, let me know what you think, andrew at andrewlawton.ca. Are you panicking? Are you worried? I do a lot of travel for some of the work things that I do, not just covering various things, but I also do media and PR consulting, and I have clients that I travel for. And I've done a fair bit of air travel in the last couple of weeks relative to the general population and haven't felt concerned, really. I do think that in the next few weeks, things are ratcheting up a little bit. I don't have anywhere that I'm going for at least, I think, three weeks or two weeks or whatever, two and a half weeks. So again, I'm cautious, but I'm not panicked about it. And I may entirely be the one in the wrong here, but I also think that we can't downplay the possibility that China has been at at the anchor, the epicenter of something that is much bigger than China has acknowledged. And I think that's the big variable here. And it's not racial or racist to say that. It's about understanding that China as a country does not have the best track record when it comes to honesty. We'll be talking about big tech censorship when we come back here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. I got to mention this story very briefly here. This comes from CTV News. An eight-year-old won $200 worth of cannabis products at a youth hockey tournament in BC. Now, a, I bet the prizes have increased uh, in value and in interest since you were a kid, right? A BC grandfather is angry after a novice hockey playing grandson of his was the winner of this $200 stash, which you look at it, it just looks like cannabis. There is a lighter USB, which I didn't know you could have a USB lighter, but uh, you've got all of these cannabis products, you've got edibles, you've got this... uh, this container of pills it looks like you've got a camo pipe for smoking the pot that you get like you have all that you need to embrace the cannabis life which is in british columbia as quintessential as drinking water anywhere else in canada and uh this this prize was was a raffle prize 
Uh, each team, apparently, of this tournament was responsible for putting a gift basket together with a minimum value of $5. And they have the paper bags. You've been to these raffles. The paper bag in front of each one. You buy your tickets and you go and you stick them in the bag of whatever prize you want to be in the draw for. And this 8-year-old spent $10 on raffle tickets and uh, ended up winning this. He says he thought he was getting chocolate because uh, when he was looking at the list, the basket wasn't actually on display. But when he was looking at the list of items, uh, he was seeing uh, vanilla chai, chocolate edibles, and other things. And the words just jumped out to his eight-year-old sensibility. He didn't realize that they were all laced with THC and stuff like that. So the, uh, the, I, when I read into this, I was actually on the Hockey Association's side because the Dawson Creek Minor Hockey Association said, look, listen, we clearly marked this for adults. It was a fun prize. It was never out in the open, and we didn't give it to the kid. It was collected by his father or grandfather, one of the two, who proved they were overage. So the, the kid was not actually given this, which I think is a very important distinction on this. Although I still think it's hilarious that like I would never supply because this is a minor league hockey uh, thing. I would never bring in like the $200 bag or basket of weed for a kid's school fundraiser or like PTA fundraiser or something. So maybe hockey parents are a little bit different. Maybe they're a lot more freewheeling or maybe it's just the British Columbia thing. But there's a boldness in bringing this to a family event one way or another. But this is Trudeau's Canada, eight-year-olds winning uh, $200 cannabis baskets that a lot of people are probably very jealous of. So in any case, I wanted to talk about this story out of the U.S., a bit because it impacts all of us if you're watching this on YouTube, listening to it on Apple Podcasts. And if you aren't subscribed to the podcast, do subscribe. Please go to andrewlawtonshow.com and whatever podcast platform you like. We have all the subscription links there. Uh, but anyone that is partaking in digital media is going to be at some point faced with the world of shadow banning, of censorship, of big tech clamping down on your right to free speech. And the challenge here is that big tech, evil as they are in many cases, are examples of private companies. Despite their ubiquity, they are private companies with their own rules and their own policies. And PragerU, which is uh, Dennis Prager's uh, fantastic uh, platform, has been shadow banned by YouTube. They've been unable to get the views that they used to get because YouTube is not pushing them into people's feeds and related videos and stuff because YouTube does not like conservatives. We know this. PragerU sued YouTube or Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, which owns YouTube, saying that Google is infringing upon their First Amendment rights. And they say that Google's censorship, quote, unlawfully censored PragerU's educational videos and discriminated against its right to free speech. PragerU said that uh, YouTube was using arbitrary and capricious use of restricted mode and demonetization viewer restriction filters, uh, targeting them because of their political identity. And they said that this is a First Amendment issue because it is a state actor, essentially, that a regulation of speech by a private party in a designated public forum is quintessentially sufficient to make that private party a state actor. And this, there is case law for this. It's not as absurd a premise as it sounds. However, I do not view 
any of these platforms as public spaces, even if the companies choose to allow the public generally to use them. That's the issue. So suppose that I own a private park in the middle of the city and I let everyone use that park. And then one day I decide to say, you know what? I don't think this park is public anymore. I'm going to shut it down and say I'm only the people that I like can come in. I don't think that I am owing to anyone just because of how that park has been traditionally used. And the thing here is that you do not have to use YouTube. You can upload a video to Vimeo. You can upload it on your own server. You can upload it to Facebook until Facebook goes after you. You do not need to use YouTube. If you choose to, you have to therefore be at the mercy of YouTube's algorithm. You have to be at the mercy of what it is that YouTube says its rules are and how YouTube chooses to enforce those rules. And this is a point that a lot of conservatives seem to have a very difficult time understanding. They talk about wanting to treat these things as publishers rather than platforms because they're imposing an editorial bias. And I agree. I mean, Facebook does have an editorial bias if it's uh, shifting uh, views away from certain pages and to others. Uh, YouTube has an editorial bias if they're clamping down on conservatives and not on people that are doing the same things on the left. But I don't think them having a bias changes that they do not owe anyone the right to use their platform. And this is what the judges ruled uh, against PragerU's lawsuit. Despite YouTube's ubiquity and its role as a public-facing platform, it remains a private forum, not a public forum subject to judicial scrutiny under the First Amendment. They further said that YouTube's censorship faces a formidable threshold hurdle. YouTube is a private entity. The free speech clause of the First Amendment prohibits the government, not a private party, from abridging speech. And this is so key because you have the right to freely associate with people and views as you so desire. If I own a stage, I have the right to decide who's allowed to perform on that stage. And I cannot demand that some theater, let the Mervish Theater in Toronto, if we're talking about this in a Canadian context, entertains me as a performer. And I don't think that conservatives are embracing an intellectually consistent position on this because the same conservatives that I see in my life are saying, you know, the gay uh, baker or the, the Christian baker doesn't have to bake a cake for the gay wedding are the same people saying YouTube censorship is illegal. Uh, we need to break up these YouTubes. We need to regulate them. We need to uh, really start trust busting. And look, you can dislike all of these platforms. And I use them because they, they make the most sense for what I'm doing. But I'm very aware that one day YouTube could say no. And I'm very aware that Twitter could one day say, ah, you know, I don't think you, you, you want to use this. Their obligation is to their terms of service, which is the contract that they have with the people using them. And I'm sorry, but if you're not paying for a platform and you choose to make it the center point of your business model, then you are unfortunately at the mercy of these things. Now, I think their decisions can and should be criticized when Twitter and Facebook get together and they start suspending accounts and they do this, whether it's Infowars or someone else, whether you like them or not. 
I think these should be criticized. I think they should do this with good faith. I think they should do this with fairness. I think they should have appeal mechanisms, but they don't owe anyone the right to use their platform for free. It's that simple. And conservatives should be very wary of what happens when these outlets start being subjected to state oversight, because then you get into what's happening in Canada right now, where Justin Trudeau's liberals actually want to regulate social media companies to curb what they call hate speech. And they don't define what hate speech is. They're going to let for, uh, social media companies uh, remove it within 24 hours or be punished by the government. And the idea of letting these companies do what they want is a heck of a lot better than making them actual state actors and making government oversight, government regulation, and government control the cornerstone of determining what content is allowed and what, what content isn't. Because if you do that, then what's happened is these companies have become essentially deputies of the state, deputies of the government, and that is going to be a lot worse for everyone involved in these platforms than letting them run wild in the more libertarian idea, which is what the judges against the PragerU case basically upheld, which is, look, they're private companies. They can do what they want. They do not owe you the right to First Amendment protections because constitutional freedom is not meant to protect people as much as it's meant to limit government. That's what that constitutional right to free speech is in Canada and in the U.S., by the way. It's about limiting government. It's not about protecting you from other private actors. Now, the one thing that I think is interesting in this case, and that the area that I thought was a more compelling argument, is false advertising. If a company is pretending or presenting itself as being a bastion of free speech and an open platform, as YouTube is, do they owe you procedural fairness? And in that case, I'd say yes, and I don't know enough about what YouTube is promising in the terms of service. But in that particular case, I'd say there's a lot more of a substantive argument you could make about uh, where things are going. In any case, I, I am a firm believer in the fact that big tech needs to be understood for what it is, that these oligopolies need to be reined in and they need to be uh, criticized and they need to be held to account. But this needs to happen by their consumer base, not by the government forcing them to allow other people on, because that means you're surrendering your rights down the road when the government says, oh, well, you forced uh, YouTube to have your show, so now I'm going to force you to have someone on your show. I mean, it's absurd, but not really if we get into that uh, area of government being able to regulate content onto platforms. My thanks to Richard Descaries and all those who tuned into today's show. We'll be back in a couple of days with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.